Biz Women Rock, episode 85. What's going on, ladies? Welcome to the Biz Women Rock podcast. I'm your host, Katie Kremitzos, and I am bringing you tremendous stories from business women all over the world in all sorts of different industries so they can talk about their business journey so yours can be inspired by it. On today's episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Azita Artakani, who's the founder of Love Social, which on the outside kind of looks like a social media agency, but that's actually not what she is at all. She is a social media storytelling agency. And so she really believes the core concept of storytelling for companies and being able to have an active, engaged conversation that really you know, moves things forward and actually makes a difference. Some of her clients have included Oprah Magazine, Michael Kors, the United Nations, <laughs> um, Nike and Converse. The underlying tone of this conversation is really one of philosophical beliefs in what social media is supposed to do and just the fact that it is really a tool to do what is so foundationally important for us humans to do which is to communicate great messages with one another. I was so inspired after this conversation and I know you're going to be too so let's start the show. Zita, thank you so much for being on the show with me today. My pleasure. I'm really excited to have this conversation because I was introduced to you through a mutual friend who really pretty much like tugged at me and said, you have got to talk to this woman. She's so fascinating and she's really doing amazing things in the social space and she's got some really cool clients who really showcase what she's all about. So thanks for being here. I really would love to start from the foundation of how you've built your business by starting from the beginning and asking what were you doing like before your business and how in the world did you come up with this concept in the first place? Totally. So I was actually born in Iran and that does tie into the story because when I went back when I was 16, it was very evident to me that there was a lot of people that just could not widely and easily communicate, specifically women. So they couldn't openly communicate. They obviously had to wear headscarves and that just kind of stuck with me. And then fast forward when I was doing my degree in sociology and kind of learning about the old school principles as it relates to community, community building, the principles of humans and what makes them connect. There was this nagging feeling in my intuition that I'd want to apply these principles into something that had a larger purpose, knowing that I came from a place I was very lucky to be a very free society and kind of communicate about what I want and really put my love and passion towards the things that were important to me. So as I was finishing my sociology degree, I was actually looking at potentially going down the human rights law route, and I was going to start doing my LSAT prep, and social media was born. So my space came to the market, and I was teaching myself HTML, actually, in my mom's house, and really was blown away that a lot of the principles that I was learning in sociology in terms of what creates a gatekeeper in a community and what are the ideal kind of fundamentals that creates for a strong sense of community and what makes messages spread really fast were also totally relevant in that social sphere. So at that time, I decided that I should probably shift routes and instead of going down something that was very traditional and predictable, I would take a risk on social media and try to apply my passion and the principles as they relate to humans 
and what I was learning in that space. So that was kind of the background and, and the motivation behind starting on social. What year was that? Because that was definitely like sort of in the infancy of all like social media really starting to bloom. That was 10 years ago. Yeah, I'm 28 now. So that was 10 years ago. So what kind of things were you doing? Like when you made this conscientious decision to kind of go into the social media space, what did you actually do? I think I was just nerding out <laughs> a lot of time. I mean, there's like the there's the general principle that it's the thing that you spend 10,000 hours or more on, you become an expert on. And I was spending hours and hours watching and basically looking at to how communities were growing, who was becoming popular and why, like why were trends spreading, why were certain people becoming what we know now as influencers, and then coincidentally watching brands really, really have trouble in this space while individuals and personalities and, and unique people were really working in a masculine community, brands and organizations were really suffering in terms of applying those those same social media principles. They were still operating the traditional advertising era. So that that kind of coincided with me seeing the opportunity and at that point I was just finishing my degree so that was about three years later. So then at some point you had nerded out for all these years became really a student and a very good student of what was going on in the social media space. What did you do to actually then start Love Social? Uh, Love Social was actually my Twitter handle at the time. I started Love Social under this premise that like every communication was anchored in love or fear and I was noticing that there was Traditional advertising was really anchored in a lot of fear-based communication, so Love Social was just my personal Twitter handle. And then, really, I reached out to an organization and a few organizations to see if I could apply the social media strategy, which really wasn't a thing, and that's another important part to note in all this. It wasn't a very intentional process of create an agency or consultancy or any of that. I was just, I would notice things online that I was interested in and then I would basically cold call and reach out to them and see if I could apply my working skill set and what I was kind of amassing in terms of knowledge by myself to help and the United Nations was actually one of those organizations and they were about to launch a campaign called Summit on the Summit which is focused around the global clean water crisis and I volunteered on the initiative for six months from Vancouver where I'm from and after six months they hired me to be the social media director and I went to LA to kind of man that project so that was the first official project and Love Social at that time was still actually technically not a company but just my Twitter handle and I was an independent consultant for that one project. Good God so you jumped right in. I did. I sure My, did. <laughs> so it's not, I mean, you really didn't ease into it. You went right into, hey, I've been studying this for a long time and I'm really passionate about it to I am now like the expert and the person in charge of this whole forward movement. Yeah, I mean, there was no, there were no experts per se, right? I mean, this was just the medium was born in and of itself. There was, there were people in the traditional marketing space or the digital space as it related to like the initial dot-com bubble that were starting to use sales tactics towards it but they actually weren't approaching it, in my opinion, from the right lens. And we're seeing that now that it's really the power of really just great content and storytelling that's, that's rising to the surface. And so those that were trying to apply the same one-sided communication principles were hitting a wall. And that's why, especially for campaigns that were trying to amass a movement and didn't necessarily have sales targets or weren't just trying to hit impressions, they were really also hitting limitations in terms of what they could do if they weren't trying to utilize very human principles in our communication. So what were some of your like proudest moments of that whole campaign? A, I mean, how long did that last? And, you know, mm -hmm. B, what were some of the things that you were actually doing that were actually producing serious results and enlivening that conversation? It was really interesting because the campaign had a bunch of pieces that were incredible and in and of themselves you would think would deem success. So the UNHCR was a beneficiary, MTV and PNG 
and Goodby and a bunch of celebrities like Jessica Biel, Neil Hirsch, Lupe Fiasco, Santi Gold. There were so many incredible humans involved. But the idea was all these celebrities were climbing Mount Kilimanjaro to raise money for clean water. The website was actually scaled to the 19,000 feet of Mount Kilimanjaro. So as they climbed, it was real-time populated with photos, tweets, and video. And it was a very interactive process and, and campaign. And what just wasn't working was there was a barrier of entry. All the brands and sponsors involved want to obviously promote their own involvement. All Everyone kind of had their own intention from a communication side of what they wanted to broadcast. But there wasn't one underlying common denominator that anyone anywhere could understand why this is relevant. So we came up with the tagline altogether called Water Equals Life. And it just kind of lowered the barrier of entry to be a very human quality that we really can't exist without water. And if you think you can you're wrong. <laughs> and we started rolling out communication that was that was much more peer-to-peer as opposed to look at this cool campaign taking place. It was much more from a relatable context and the language was simplified. So I think at that time we learned that simplicity is key, less is always more, and that you really have to understand that you're competing for people's time especially as it relates to social, not just as another brand or campaign, but you're competing against their nieces and nephews or their family or whatever else. Like the thing that people are interested in is their own communities. They're actually not very often interested in what a brand or a campaign has to say. So if you're talking to them in a very alien advertising kind of way, they just aren't going to plug in. And those things kind of helped us move the cause on Facebook from the 400,000th cause to the number one cause in two weeks. And that's kind of how everything kicked off. I want to get a little specific about what that truly meant. You're talking about the concept of what you did. What did that mean? Because you kind of had this little snapshot that I've seen is that you had up to like 12 million impressions on Twitter in one day. So what were you tweeting different articles that you guys had written? Were you just having, well, like, what was your dialogue? What, what were you tweeting photos out? Like, what, what sure. was that that actually happened that caused that? Well, the one-day thing, and this is what we also learned, so the way the algorithms work on all these social channels is that it's actually based on a tight, high volume and a tight period of time. So you could have 10,000 over the course of four weeks or 1,000 in the course of an hour, and your 1,000 in the course of an hour is actually going to have a higher ROI for the for whatever you're trying to do because it's really based on, like, tight syndication. So the algorithm responses on both Twitter and Instagram and all those guys in keywords used in very small pockets of time. So what we did was we rolled out uh, basically a Twitter flash mob, <laughs> for lack of a better term. There's now tools that automate that. So there's a tool called Thunderclap that does this automated, but at that time there was no automated Thunderclap. And so what we did was we organized and orchestrated the day prior that we wanted to everyone to have a certain tweet and they would tag a person. So like Russell Simmons would tweet something, they would he would tag one of his artists and then that person would tag someone else and it kind of rolled out a flash mob of sorts. So we we kind of had an implied infrastructure around how we wanted this to go viral and it worked. That's such a great idea. Really, really good idea. So, well, now there's an automated tool that does it for you. Yeah. So <laughs> but, the, but the concept is brilliant. I mean, just really making that so personable and then sort of passing it along and then everyone right. gets connected on a mass scale for the larger purpose. Yeah, totally. That obviously was a huge success for you. Really got, you know, kind of cut your teeth on bringing that together for a purpose and an organization. What did you do from there? Did that really give birth to Love Social, the company? And then how did you move forward? 
Todd Moskowitz, who at the time was the CEO of Warner Brothers Music, was actually representing Lupe and Santi and a few other artists on the label. And so he heard about the campaign. He knew Kenna, who really spearheaded this whole thing. And he reached out and was just interested into kind of supporting me. He knew that digital was going to play a growing role in music and everything else that he was involved in. And he just really liked the pro-social element of, of what I was bringing to the table. So at that point, Love Social officially went from being a Twitter handle into an LLC, and he became my 50% partner. So how did you start moving forward from there? Because you had this really great experience behind you. Now, how did you go out and get your first clients? Like, how did you actually go out and start marketing yourself and bringing people in to be clients of yours? It was a lot of just being out there and being early to the scene. I would say timing is 35% of the reason that we've gotten the the traction that we have. So just being out there and playing into the specialization as it related to social media and being an individual actually really helps because a lot of agencies in the traditional space were stating that they offered these services, but it was a really intimidating process for a lot of brands to kind of tap into them. So actually at a dinner party, I met a woman named Marjorie Googleman, who's a dear friend and an advisor now, and she introduced me to a ton of our initial first clients, including Tori Perch to Oprah Magazine, Michael Kors, and her as an individual, and she has a great network in New York, and really just believing in me and believing in the way that we are going about this, that it got our initial lift. And planting these seeds in each one of these areas from technology to fashion to cause to documentaries. Once we'd work on one project, they usually spurred two or three. And from there, that's for two or three. And it's, it's really kind of been going that way since we actually don't have a business development or sales team. Five years later, we st- we're still very referral-based. And this would probably be a really good time to actually walk everyone through what your actual business model is. And I want to make this distinction. It's very easy to look in on you and call yourself a social media firm, but that's not who you are. I mean, I think I saw somewhere that you really describe yourself as a social media storytelling agency. So can you talk about what your business model is and what you're really offering to your clients? Sure. I think we really act as a mirror where a lot of firms, a brand or a client will come to you and they will create something out of nothing. We really try to reflect the truth of what's there and the best of what's there and really drill into the value. So it's something that we call the grain of truth process. And it's the first part of our strategy. And what it helps us do is find out what is unique to you and why should anyone really pay and tune into a conversation as it relates to you. And that conversation might come to life through a website, a content series, an influencer activation, a branded channel, whatever else. But it really comes down to first understanding what is the value that you're putting out in the world. And that can very much be a value from a commercial place in terms of a great product and a great you know, lineage of product story, or it might be an actual cause campaign where you're trying to pass a moratorium on hydraulic fracturing or change photo shopping for an industry, which we've worked on both of those things as well. But by first really zeroing in on the value of the message and why you're different, from there we can kind of figure out what channels and mediums make the most sense kind of roll that out. I know that you have a partner who came on board. How do you guys work that partnership? What is that relationship that you have and who does what? So Todd is very much, he was very much strategic and it's great in a way that he doesn't really live and breathe this space because his experience is very much in the music sector and that's kind of where he got his book. He was at Step Jam and, and several other large labels and his knowledge base is really how you create movements as a 
relates to music. And so he participates very much on the strategic high-level partnerships and I think supports me more on like a day-to-day business level of making key decisions, less on client work. And I think we just felt out the partnership. I think the best part about, you know, how we became partners is that there was no baked-in expectation of, you know, you're going to be responsible for this or I'm going to be responsible for that. He really has let me run with it and have the reins of the relationship as a whole. You have built your company. I think you have about like eight people on your team now, right? What yeah. what has that process been like as far as hiring your first person and now being the manager of a team? What are some lessons that you've learned in being able to manage people and being able to sort of build great leadership out of your company? I mean, I would have done it all differently, obviously. It's <laughs> funny because the things I've learned are like everything I wouldn't have done in a lot of ways. We started off in Vancouver. In some ways, that was a good thing because I stayed out of kind of the intensity of the New York and L.A. and San Francisco markets, but a lot of the activity was taking place. On the bad side, we didn't stay top of mind. A downfall is that we hinged a lot of the growth of the company around me and my story, and what we should have done is really created much more proprietary packaging around our services so that anybody, we onboarded people, there wasn't that much dependence on me as a consultant. And really because this was born out of me consulting, that's why there a lot of the initial weight of our client expectations was was on me. So initially the team I amassed in Vancouver was reflective of just helping me execute. And really now our team is reflective of everyone kind of being an expert in their own space and actually doing something I can't do. And, and that's our, my key advice as, as you're looking to grow a small team is everybody is a department, not just people that are supporting one thing, but everyone in and of themselves is doing something that nobody else can do because then you can scale in an entire department under that that one individual. What advice would you give to somebody who has built their business based on their story and their name brand and now they really want to be able to give that over to people? Like what immediate steps can they take to make sure that that's happening without losing clientele? I mean, a lot of it is the messaging. So we shifted a lot of the messaging in our bios and everything else to include my name to it, just including the service. It's the hierarchy of communications, whereas before it's the person and it's their story. It shifts into the client success stories and it shifts into the value of the services stories. And and those are the ones that you lead with and you kind of start setting the expectation for people to come in on. What kind of leader are you? And did you naturally like fit into this role of leader of your whole team? Or did you have some hiccups along the way? I'm a terrible employee. That's why I knew I had to be a leader. So I think I was like forced into <laughs> leadership because I'm not very good at being told what to do. And honestly, for me, I, since I was like three years old, I felt a fire in my belly that I was going to do something on my own and that I was going to own my, my mission and my energy in the world. Like I can't imagine showing up for a large corporation and putting in my human capital and my ideas and my creativity and my passion and walking away not feeling a part of something that I was vested in. And the way that we, I, I think I lead is that it's very much everyone has a sense of ownership and or technical ownership in the company and has a stakeholder relationship. By becoming a certified B Corporation, which we are, we're the youngest B Corporation out of about 1,100, which is a form of third-party certification that mandates a triple bottom line kind of philosophy. Other companies, for example, are like Etsy, Patagonia, Warby Parker, that also are in this. But in doing that process, you actually are forced to really think about how are you making sure your employees are autonomous? How are they vested? How are they supported? So a lot of this for me is that like I 
hated showing up to a job nine to five and being one person at work and then being a different person outside of it. And I really want Love Social to be this fluid extension of what you're passionate about. And it just so happens you come here for eight to 10 hours a day and then you do your own thing. But it's not a huge divide in terms of what you're excited about and what you feel like is kind of your your life's work. What have been one of your like most painful or just dark moments that you've had over these years of building your company? And how did you move through that? I think that something that is never told, everyone talks about the starting process, but the darkest time is like the maintenance process or the times where you're totally uninspired or work slows down and you kind of second guess everything or other competitors come to the market that just do it better than you. There's no like really 101 on maintenance periods. There's a lot of stories about failure and there's a lot of stories about success and the gray area is the darkest, in my opinion. It's the areas where work is good, but it's not great, or things are just kind of super not inspiring and not like the entrepreneur story every day. And then you guess, you second guess everything, and you wonder if you're even supposed to be doing it at all and why you started in the first place. And I think for that, it's usually a mourning period before you hit another personal growth curve. And you're really mourning the loss of a way of thinking that doesn't serve you anymore or a way of working that doesn't serve you anymore. And then you kind of hit hopefully another another area to dive into that is invigorating and inspiring all over again. But that in-between is the worst. What wall did you have to hit in order to sort of have that morning period end for you? Like, was it a new idea of where you wanted your company to go? Like the new vision? It was a new location. Vancouver as a location wasn't serving us. It wasn't a market that really honestly fostered support for young startups. It technically just the clientele wasn't risk-taking clientele, and it is. It is risk-taking when you are working with a few-year-old agency versus a known and established 35-plus-year-old agency with thousands of employees. People are taking a risk when they work with us, and Vancouver is not a market that, that does a lot of that. So there was a solid year where every day I questioned why we were there, why we existed as a whole, whether it made more sense to just start something entirely different or if we should stay and grow a different office. And so what we ended up doing, and at the time, actually, we were having a potential acquisition conversation with an agency. And it was really appealing to, to think about, should we just be acquired and be partnered with another agency? Or can we do this on our own? And that not knowing was brutal. But then once we decided that we would move to New York, and we would stay independent, it took a huge weight off the shoulders of myself and our key employees that we moved over to New York and it was a new new beginning. But like I said, it's usually that gray area is when you're mourning the loss of a big chapter. I really appreciate you sharing that because I think that there's so many of us who go through that exact stage and I don't think I've ever really heard it languaged that way, which is a really good way to understand it. I mean, what kind of stuff did you do or people did you have in your life or practices did you have during that year that enabled you to kind of keep chugging forward or, or to not stop? Because it could have been very easy for you to just stop. I mean, you were sort of in the space of like, I'm not going to stop, but I don't know what the next thing is. So what, what kind of things did you do to kind of maintain some sort of sensibility about moving forward? I drank wine in the shower. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I love uh, that answer. <laughs> well, there was a lot of that. There was a lot of like long emo walks. There was a lot of like dark filters on my Instagram. No, I, it was a lot of, 
everything, including speaking to a bunch of great people that were in totally different fields. And that was actually really, really helpful to us. We spoke to artists. I spoke to filmmakers. I spoke to people also in the technology space or the advertising space. But I actually tried to just speak to people that were really passionate about what they did, not necessarily in my space because I was kind of not feeling super inspired in my space as a whole. And that was awesome because it was actually working principles, i.e. blocking off periods of time that have nothing to do with what you're doing or reimagining something that from a different lens or perspective or creative brainstorms in unorthodox spaces and times. And the answers came from a wide myriad of people and also touching base with my family and just people that knew me really well in the essence of who I was before I was a CEO or before they knew me in this role. They have a strong sense of like what my DNA and my makeup is and what excites me. And that kind of helped me. I call that like the beginning of my coming home days, kind of coming back into myself because I think When you start something, you almost leave yourself for a minute to grow into a role of who you need to be and what you need to do from time to time is gut check and make sure it's actually still an honest extension of who you are. So who are you? What kind of things really get you going? I mean, aside from, yes, you're you're this social media gal, who are you? Like what really drives you? What things are you interested in? I love NPR, and now they've been a client of ours over the last bit, and that's been honestly a gift from the gods because they are the oldest tool form of audio storytelling, and it's reminded me of the essence of human beautiful stories, and that's really the essence of what we are. We're very old school in a way. It's funny because we're like technology and future-facing and all these things. The essence of who I am is like typewriters and crafting and getting my hands dirty and weird things like botany and understanding why things grow and why things come together. And it's this weird mixed uh, background element of my interest that inspires a lot of our work so that we're not looking at it in the same way that everyone else is. And I think for me, a lot of it still comes back to like adding value on a day-by-day basis. Like is if, if what we're putting out in the world through our clients isn't inspiring anyone. It's not interesting to me. It's not interesting to my clients. It's not interesting to my employees that are working on it. And when you treat it, and I think this is a tricky thing as it relates to social media, it's like, yeah, it's not a physical thing that you can point to, but it's still energy. It's energy expended to create it. It's energy expended to consume it, to share it. All of that is tons of energy. I mean, if you ask anyone right now how much time they spend, just kind of scrolling through their phone on a day-by-day basis, it's a, it's a lot of energy and time spent. And so that's why the tagline for us, communicate with intention, is everything that we keep going back to. Like, is this beautiful? Is this intentional? Is this something that feels honest and true and sacred? And that's that's probably pretty good uh, <laughs> wrap up of how kind of I see myself and, and the work that we put out in the world. Azita, I really want to bring this conversation to a close by asking you where you see yourself going, both for Love Social and just in general, like what things are really important for you in the future? I think actually now that I'm not afraid of owning our philosophy, I think there's an audacity in what we believe in and we're ready to really own it and push it out into the world and not just through our client work, but Love Social needs to really put its voice out there and, and it stands for things that are really crucial and we're in a time and place that we're oversaturated with so many messages and things and stuff that I think our work is going to increasingly become important and most importantly our philosophy needs to be out there. So in the future I hope that Love Social's philosophy is well circulated and that it ends up inspiring young people or they join on board for a company or they even how they spend their morning on Facebook. I hope it's that philosophy of communicating with intention, but something that becomes a cornerstone in how we communicate.
Well, Zita, I really want to thank you so much for sharing your story and for giving such a beautiful philosophy about what being in the social media space really truly can be about. And I love the storytelling aspect of it. And that's what this podcast is really all about. And so I, I just really thank you so much for sharing your story with us. It was my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. You can find out more about how to connect with the Zeta at bizwomenrock.com forward slash 85. I really enjoyed that conversation with Azita. It was so inspiring and uh, it was not the conversation I thought we would have, which was a great surprise. I love that it totally just flowed and, uh, and she had such great information. I think the biggest thing I got from it was when she spoke about that gray area of maintenance. So it's not the excitement and the exhilaration of starting the company. And it's not, you're not quite yet at like that next phase of your company, but you're sort of in this maintenance mode. Oh my God, I could totally identify with that. And, um, and I just really loved the, you know, tips that she gave about what you do in the meantime and what kind of what you need to do to get through that. I hope something in here really hit home for you. And if it did, share with me. I would love to hear about it. You can go to bizwomenrock.com and let me know there. Or just tag me on Facebook or Twitter, bizwomenrock. Thanks so much for being here. I'll see you on the next episode. Mm-hmm.